I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And let us pray. Father, thank you that we can pray. Father, we thank you that you are a prayer-hearing God, and we are appreciative of your Son, our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession, and the confidence and the boldness we have to know we are heard. And uh, at these moments, I would ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in conveying your word. I thank you so much for the privilege of communicating your word. I thank you for each one that is here. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all understanding into Holy Scripture. Pray that you would enlighten our, our own hearts and our own minds to perceive your holy intention. And I pray the result would be not only bringing glory to thee, but certainly doing good to our souls. So we commit our time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're embarking this morning on a study um, in the book of Hebrews. I'm not sure how long. We'll just kind of trust the Lord and, and, and see how it goes. Um, it's probably the case uh, when you think of this particular book, maybe that different things come to mind. It might be uh, Hebrews chapter 11, one of the most famous chapters in Scripture, where there are many examples of, of faith and uh, there are aspects of people's lives that we want to be able to emulate, or it may be um, that the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of this book is, is Christ as a great and glorious and accessible high priest. Uh, Hebrews is a, a longer letter than Colossians, but they both both bring out the supremacy of the person of Christ. The, the accent in the book of Hebrews is the unique role uh, of our Lord as a great high priest, in, in trying to state the, the theme of the entire letter, one author, for example, this is Christ our high priest. That's what this particular book is about. If you have an ESV study Bible, they're a bit more expansive in the theme of the book. Uh, Christ is greater than any angel, priest, or old covenant institution. Thus, each reader, rather than leaving such a great salvation, is summoned to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. So as chapter 1 can be thought of as the supremacy of the person of Christ, and, and a bit more narrowly, verses 1 through 4, uh, God has spoken in his Son, or God's final words in his Son. And this morning, I want to locate our, our thinking on verse 1, and then just into the first part of verse 2. Uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, I think is uh, instructive at this point. He says, the author plunges straight into the exposition of the grand theme the truth of which he is intent on communicating to his readers, namely the uniqueness and finality of the revelation of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. And he enlarges on this. The opening statement then sets the tone and introduces the main theme of the whole epistle, namely the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ in comparison with the transitory and incomplete character of all that preceded. So in verses uh, 1 and 2, uh, we note here that there's two great epochs, 
British pronunciation, I think, two great epochs of God's revelations placarded before our minds, long ago on the one hand and in these last days on the other. And uh, by way of introduction, I just want to offer three further uh, remarks. Uh, first of all, this, this transition from one era to the other, one era of um, revelation, of redemptive revelation to the other, it's marked by decisive contrast. Um, you could put it in terms of four parallel contrasts. Uh, number one, there's a contrast of, of eras, time past and these last days. Secondly, there's a contrast of the recipients of divine revelation. In verse 1, the recipients are the fathers, and in verse 2, it is to us. In these last days, he has spoken to us. And then thirdly, there's a contrast in, in terms of the, the agency or the agent of revelation. In time past, in the Old Testament era, it was in the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And then fourthly, there's a contrast in terms of a time past. He spoke in many ways, but now only in one way in his son. So it's marked by these various kinds of contrast. Secondly, it's marked by continuity which is to say in both eras of uh, salvation history, what gives it unity is God has spoken. God has spoken. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So what what gives uh, unity and continuity to these two different eras is the fact that in in both cases we have the same unchanging, unchangeably wise, all-knowing God speaking. Uh, Therefore, the message is authoritative and the message is reliable. As one put it, fundamental to the author's argument is the conviction that God has not remained silent, but has taken the initiative and revealed himself. Well, then a a third remark um, would be that this transition from one, one, one time frame of redemptive revelation to the other, it's marked by progression. So there are contrasts, there's continuity, but there's also progression or advancement of thought in the sense of anticipation to fulfillment. Robert Martin, in his very helpful commentary on Hebrews, wrote, in these opening verses, the writer, of course, implies that God did not say everything at once. He points to two great epochs of God's speaking, one which concluded in time past or long ago, the other which occurred in these last days. Hebrews thus begins with the comparison of these two great eras of revelatory history. Uh, They are governed by two great covenants and revelations, the Mosaic slash Old Covenant, that is God's revelation to Moses and the prophets, and by his revelation in his son. The Old Covenant is marked by incompleteness and anticipation. It is preliminary and temporary. The New Covenant is marked by completeness and fulfillment. It's final and it is permanent. So there is progression from one era to the other. So this morning, keeping in our minds this, this, great transi- this great transition in salvation's history from times past to these last days, and then especially that God's final and complete revelation is in his Son, I want to emphasize three ways in which there's ongoing significance for us. Three ways, this is kind of to, to introduce the book, but three ways in which there's ongoing significance, I believe, to you and I. The first one relates to the example of the prophets. And in, in here, in what I want to emphasize in a moment is that the, the prophets are, are people who felt the reality and the power of the message. And we'll get to that, but I just wanted to interact with a few thoughts from the, the text itself. 
Uh, let, me, let me draw your attention to verse 1 one more time. God, after he spoke uh, long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Um, this has reference to what was taking place in the, in the first of these two great time frames in which God spoke and he made his will known. F.F. F. Bruce wrote the two stages of divine revelation correspond to the Old and the New Testament, respectively. Uh, O'Brien, Peter O'Brien adds, the first stage of revelation was in the past, that is, during the Old Testament times, when God's word was addressed to the fathers. And the fathers here, I believe, has regard to uh, the, the people of God under that particular dispensation or, or time frame. One wrote the common expression is not restricted here to the biblical patriarchs, that is, fathers, but designates all the people of God under the old covenant. And then you notice, notice it says, in many portions and in many ways. The term portion is the idea of fragmentary or in many parts. And then ways has to do with a diverse or various manners, and it suggests the, the variety of ways in which God spoke and at that particular point in time. Um, William Lane, I think, does a good job kind of summarizing the significance of these two terms, portion and ways. He says this, these compounds express in an emphatic way the writers, that is the writer of Hebrews, conviction concerning the, the extent of the Old Testament revelation. That is, portions and ways bring out some of the fullness of the Old Testament revelation. He surveys the revelation granted to the prophets in its variety and fullness, but implies that until the coming of the Son, the revelation remained incomplete. This first term that we mentioned, portions, with respect to some application, indicates um, various time frames. As Robert Martin pointed out, God said some things to man in his innocence. Later, man's fall into sin was answered by the revelation of other things. So he spoke different things to his people at different times. But we also notice that he did so in, in different ways. F.F. F. Bruce he spoke in a storm and, a th and thunder to Moses, yet to Elijah in a still small voice. Um, so we notice he's, um, his speaking uh, was also in the prophets. And the fundamental point, I, I believe here, is that the, the message was through the prophets to the people. And again, if you have an ESV study Bible, the comment is interesting. The speaking was through prophets, which in Jewish thought included the authors of both the prophetic and the historical books of the Old Testament. So Moses, for example, wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was a prophet in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And, and Stephen quotes this in Acts 7.37, this is the Moses, who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And Acts 3.22 again, Moses, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. So Moses was a prophet and Peter O'Brien wrote, God's authoritative word to these ancestors was addressed through the prophets. And then the expression he indicates is best taken broadly to include all those through whom God spoke, from the patriarchs, through Moses, Joshua, David, and the classical prophets. Now it's interesting, William Lane, just kind of for your own information, another commentator that I found helpful, um, indicates since the, the locus of God's spoken word for the author of Hebrews was the scripture, it's possible that the phrase may actually signify uh, in the prophets' writings, namely uh, the Old Testament scriptures. They were writing prophets. But for the author of Hebrews, what God said through the prophets is to be found in the scriptures. 
And, and um, O'Brien writes the distinction between the persons and the writings in this context should not be pressed. But what, what they said was inscripturated. It's found in the Bible. And in terms of uh, some ongoing application for you and I, what I would have you notice here for a moment is that um, the, the prophets were men who believed and felt the reality of the message that they conveyed. It was not like a, a mail carrier who delivers a message, but there's no vested interest. As one commentator put it, Jeremiah shows us how intimately the prophets were involved with the word. Um, in a passage, this is from Jeremiah, in a passage about the deceitfulness of the people, we find Jeremiah is not just saying, you know, you guys need to shape up, but rather he says, my sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images and foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now, this is not to say that you and I should weep every time we communicate the gospel to someone, but, but there's something God-honoring when you and I feel the reality and the glory and the power of the message, whatever part of divine truth we have, we, we can communicate to other people. Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. So God spoke through the prophet to the people. They, they felt the reality and the glory and the burden of the message to the people. It's God honoring when you and I have the opportunity to speak to others about Christ, to, to feel in our souls and our spirits the force and the reality and the glory of the message. Well, a second way in which this, this transition from one era to the other is significant for us is to realize we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So there's a chronological shift here in redemptive history. And let me offer uh, two or three remarks. Excuse me, two or three remarks with respect to the reality of, of living in the last days. First of all, it has reference to the period of time that commences with the coming of Christ and ends with the return of the person of Christ. So we're talking about the, the, the coming of Christ in the first century and the last days will end when he returns. O'Brien says a phrase used at significant points in the Old Testament, a literal translation would be at the end of these days. And he writes a phrase used at significant points in the Old Testament to describe the period when the words of the prophets would be fulfilled. So it points to the arrival of the end time. He calls it the, the period of eschatological fulfillment, which is kind of a long word. But the term last here in our text is where we get the English term that's the first part of the word eschatology. So um, you might wonder what it's going to be like to live in the end times. It's like today. We're there. It, it, we have been there since the coming, the first coming of Christ. Uh, we are living in the end times. We've, we've, we're there. Uh, it, it's beginning corresponded with the coming of the person of Christ. Gareth Lee Cockerill, in his 
work says, by adding these, the writer of Hebrews affirms that the present time is the time of prophetic fulfillment. These last days will end with his second coming when his enemies will be made as, as a stool under his feet. So Moses and Joshua and Elijah, they, they did not live in the last days. For them, it was a prophetic reality. But for you and I, it's a current reality. Uh, the prophecies concerning it are presented as a time especially of salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. One writer says the Greek term for at the end of the days is one of several related phrases commonly used in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the prophesied time of God's coming judgment and salvation. So it's presented as a time of judgment and salvation. For example, Jeremiah 23.20, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. Uh, Jeremiah thirty twenty three. Behold, the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a, a sweeping tempest that will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the last days or the latter days, you will understand this. So the emphasis on, on the last days, when you think of the last days, it's not strictly on um, the intensification of, of moral depredation. I mean, how do we know we're in the last days because of the overt immorality in our culture? That there is something to be said for that, Second Timothy chapter 3. Um, but there has always been rampant immorality, right? I mean, we read about Sodom in the Old Testament and the Lord destroyed it. We read about why he flooded the earth. That there's always been rampant immorality. Well, what is unique about the times that we are living in is the next major redemptive event is the return of the person of Christ. And, and this yields maybe two obvious um, points of implication. One, it, it intensifies the fact that we're living in the last days intensifies the urgency connected with repenting now and turning to Christ as your Lord and Savior. I, I suppose someone could say, well, wait a minute, Doug, the last days, this period is, is over 2,000 years long, right? Right. I mean, couldn't it go on for another thousand years? And the answer, well, it could, but you will not. And Hebrews makes it very clear. There is a sense in which when any person dies, th th there is a kind of final judgment that occurs. In, in Hebrews 9.27, it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. A, a point means destined. This is to be governed by inevitable, unchangeable circumstances. The, the inevitable circumstance is death, which from, from our perspective... Um, as, as those who are still, when we're still living and someone dies, it seems like the end because we, we can't talk to them anymore. We can't call them anymore. So it seems like the end. But for the one who dies, there's a radical change. There, there's a, a radical, profound modification of existence. And the term judgment is part of the, event, the inevitable eventuality. It's where we get the English term crisis. Um, it's a term that it can be used medically to refer to the turning point for better or worse uh, of an acute disease or fever or crisis. It's an emotionally significant event, a radical change of status in a person's life, a radical profound change of status in a person's life. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, he said to the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. I think he could have said rightly to him, right now we are suffering and we're a public spectacle, but, but later on today all that will change. 
that there will be a radical, profound change. We read about the rich man in Luke chapter 16. In this world, he dressed in, in expensive clothes and lived lavishly, but he died and experienced a, a radical change of status to a place of unending torment. So if you're not a Christian, the, the, the message is you need to repent and turn to Christ now because it's appointed for a man who wants to die, and then comes judgment. There's just little time to really deal with our, our souls. Well, And secondly, the awareness that we are living in the last days, it's marked by salvation and judgment, it's a great incentive to persevere in the faith regardless of how difficult the circumstances become. There's always a level of tribulation and difficulty just with being a Christian. Uh, that's just the way that it is. One wrote, there are also a time in which the recipients of Hebrews are urged to be faithful and to avail themselves of God's redemption in his son. Now, some of those to whom the writer was writing, whoever that is, were really undergoing great suffering. Just one example here in verse 34 of chapter 10. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How in the world do you do that? You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Well, the rest of the verse, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. The suffering was real and it was arduous, but the assurance of eternal joy and bliss was greater. I reckon we reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And then a, a third way in which this um, time of transition, I think, is significant for us is to realize that now he, he has spoken to us in his son. He has spoken to us in his son. Verse 2, um, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Philip Hughes writes, the contrast is further emphasized by the assertion that it was in former times that God spoke through the prophets, whereas it is in this age that he has spoken through his son. So whereas the, the words that were spoken through the prophets were anticipatory, the word spoken through the Son, is, it's complete and it is final. Again, to quote Robert Martin, in the Son, God has spoken his full and final word. And that which was but type and shadow was given way to the great reality to which it pointed. God has spoken in his Son, and by speaking in this way, he set aside the old covenant and established the new covenant. No longer will God meet with his people at the temple in Jerusalem, no longer he accept the Mosaic sacrifices. No longer may the Levitical priests minister before him. The great high priest is come. He has entered into the heavenly sanctuary to minister before God for his people. He's offered his own blood as the full and final sacrifice for sins. Then along the same lines, Philip Hughes, hence the consistency with which the whole is pervaded. The new covenant is in Christ is the realization, the realization of the promises, prophecies, and figures which form the heart of the old order. The past tense of the verb spoke indicates further that God's speaking is complete. This is true not only of the past era of the Old Testament prophets, but also the present age of messianic fulfillment. God's word in Christ has been spoken fully and finally. It is his ultimate word of grace and therefore also of judgment. Christ is God's eschatological fulfillment. Martin Luther wrote, If the word of the prophets is accepted, how much more ought we to seize the gospel of Christ, since it is not a prophet speaking to us, but the Lord of the prophets, not a servant, but a son, not an angel, but God. And further, it is not our forefathers. He is addressing us specifically and directly. 
And, and it's, it's, there's not only this finality, he speaks in his son, there's not only this finality and fulfillment, but there's also infinite intrinsic superiority of his person over that of the prophets. In this transition to the new era, this new time of redemptive revelation, there is in the person of Christ an intrinsic superiority. There's an excellency in his person. Uh, O'Brien writes rather surprisingly, God's final word comes through a son, a phrase which contains no definite article, like like, like the word the. Uh, This does not suggest that Jesus is is one son among many whom God may have used as agents of his final revelation. Rather, son, without the definite article, emphasizes the exalted status of the final messenger and may be rendered one who is son. Later, Hebrews will show that this son is seated at God's right hand and is superior to all others through whom God has spoken, especially Moses, excuse me, especially angels, Moses, Joshua, and Aaron. Now, one commentator, um, and I just found this to be helpful to my own thought process and kind of end with this, but one commentator indicated this idea, excuse me, of God speaking now in his son um, heightens our responsibility. It heightens our responsibility to respond to the word. The way he puts it is like this. The pastor will use the finality of God's son revelation in two interlocking ways. When he urges perseverance in the faith, he will remind his hearers that the responsibility of those who hear God's word in the son is much greater than that of those who received earlier revelation. And I, a text, I think, that, that fits this and, and makes the point, I'll, I'll read it to you, it's Hebrews ten twenty nine. but leading up to it, we have these verses. Uh, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. He's writing to brethren here. He's writing to professing Christians. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, verse 29 says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted insulted the Spirit of grace? So heightened knowledge is heightened responsibility. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will pay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think it's a helpful point for you and I because it produces the sense of responsibility, produces a sense of sobriety also in the living of the Christian life, which is something that we greatly need. It helps us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And let us pray. Father, this morning I would ask that you would take these considerations as we consider what you have been pleased to do us, do for us in your Son and make um, application to our hearts and to our souls for your honor and for your glory and for our good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.